There we go. You guys ready? That'll be the last time we'll see that, huh? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, somebody was getting excited over here, said a big yeehaw. Where someone, someone over here, yeehaw. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Courageous Calling has been our teaching series. We've been working our way through 2 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll look at that whole chapter. So we started the year off. Anybody remember what we started teaching at the beginning of this year? That's a, I'll take that. We, we typically teach the Bible around here. That's a good thing. We're specifically in the Bible. It was 1 Timothy. And I forgot it last night. Somebody had to remind me of that last night, but I've got it on my notes right here in front of me, so I wouldn't forget. But 1 Timothy, we were talking about, it, the title of it was uh, Unstoppable Force, working our way through 1 Timothy. We spent about 11 weeks in there. We were talking about the church, what is a healthy church, and, and we spent the last four weeks, this is our fourth week in 2 Timothy, Courageous Calling the Christian. What does a healthy Christian look like? And this uh, weekend, we're talking about finish strong. Finish strong. So a number of years ago, I was, uh, I was doing biathlons, half marathons, 10Ks. I was preparing to run a marathon. And I decided I wanted to do a triathlon. And it wasn't the big Ironman triathlon. It was what was called a sprint triathlon. It was out at Firebird Lake here in the valley. And the, typically the race, uh, triathlons usually start with a swim and then uh, the bike. And I think it's the run, typically how they do it. But this particular one started with the run. There wasn't enough room for everybody to go in the lake all at the same time, smaller lake there. So it started with a run, six-mile run, half-mile swim. It was about a 15- to 20-mile bike ride. And I was really feeling good that particular morning. Man, I had eaten my Wheaties, and I was ready to go. And I ran probably one of the best mile-paced races I'd ever run in that, that uh, six miles. I mean, I was in the front of the pack, and I was like, whoa, this is good. And then I jumped into the water, and I could not catch my breath. And typically, you know, when you're swimming, it was a half-mile swim, so you swim, what is that called when you swim like this? Freestyle, is that the freestyle? I wasn't doing this number, I was doing this number. <laughs> Just doing everything I could, I couldn't catch my breath. I kept my head above the water like this. I couldn't even do the breaststroke. To, to, to make any progress. And while I was in the water, I had literally hundreds and hundreds of people swim over the top of me. It's not funny. I nearly drowned. And, uh, and so it was like one of those things. And, I, and finally, I, I dog paddled my way a half mile, got out of the water. My wife had this concerned look on her face as she's waiting for me to get out of the water. She was with our kids. And she's like, what happened? I was like, I, uh, I got on the bike and just did not do well. Was sick to my stomach, throwing up, and, and it was just a mess. And finally finished. So I started at the front of the pack and ended at probably at the tail end of the pack. I did not finish strong. And then I found out why my wife was so concerned. She had a concerned look on her face because she had the, the insurance, the life insurance guy on the phone. And she wasn't going to get as much money as she had hoped from my death in the water. That was really hurtful. No, that's not what happened, actually. She was, she was really, truly concerned. And, and it was just one of those things where I, I started strong. I, I started really strong but didn't finish very strong. In my lifetime, I have seen way too many, way too many Christians, Christian leaders, pastors not finish strong and take a lot of people with them. It breaks my heart when I say that. And it's not how you start the race, but how you finish it that matters most. And I want you, I want me to be strong finishers. I want you to be a strong finisher all the way to the end. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And Paul is, is finishing strong here in our text, and uh, this is what he says, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. 
I mean, he is finishing strong. So here's three questions we're going to look at here this morning as it relates to finishing strong. Why finish strong? He's going to give us the motivation for that. Second question is, what is finishing strong? What does that mean? What does that look like? And then how to finish strong? I think he answers all three of those questions in this text. Before we uh, read our text and work through these notes, let's once again, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And you promised us in Isaiah 40, 31 that those who wait upon you shall be renewed in strength. And so as we wait upon you, as we look to you, as we trust in you, as we hope in you through the study of your word, may your Holy Spirit strengthen us as you teach us the why, the what, and the how of finishing strong in our faith for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Grab your Bibles and uh, let me read this last. This is the grand finale of this teaching series in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'll read completely through this uh, text. And he says here, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ. By the way, before I read, let me just imagine this because this is really the context. Imagine you are on your deathbed and you are days away from having your head cut off, martyred. That's Paul. So you get a little bit more of the the context here. And he's passing the ministry baton off to Timothy and to us. And so he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has departed from me and gone to Thessalonica. Grecians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. I love these next two verses. Listen to what he says. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, with, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. So, we've got some work to do. Take a look at your notes here. First question we're looking at 
is what, why finish strong? Why, what's the motive for us finishing strong? Verses one through five, that answers that question for us. Here's the first thing, it's on your notes. First fill in the blank. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's why we want to finish strong. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Look at verse one. Keep your Bibles open. We'll be referring back. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So there will be his appearing. He will bring his kingdom. He will judge both the living and the dead. Notice he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. You may be overlooked and go unnoticed by others, but your ways, all that you do, all that you say, all that you think, everything about you are always before the eyes of the Lord. I love the story by Dale Tackett from The Truth Project. How many have gone through The Truth Project? You guys familiar with it? It's a pretty interesting program. Dale Tackett tells a story of a guy who struggled with porn when his family was gone. When they would leave the house, he said he had struggled with, with porn. And so Dale asked him, do you believe in the omnipresence of God? And the guy said, of course I do. Dale responded by saying, no, you don't. Because whether your family is there or not, God is always there. And that alone should bring both comfort of his help and the conviction that you don't want to do anything that would ever dishonor him. That's a great answer. Both comfort and conviction, omnipresence of God. Hebrews 4.13 says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of God to whom we must give an account. I mean, let that land on you this morning. We are naked before God. He knows everything about us. That should bring both comfort and conviction. As believers, we have nothing to fear because our judge is our savior who died in our place for our sins, which should motivate our faithfulness and, and, and just think about this for a minute. Believe me, believe me. When you look into the eyes of your Savior, when you take your last breath on earth, you take your first breath in heaven as believers, we will look into the eyes of the one who loved us more than we will ever know and bled and died for us. And you will want to have lived an unwasted life for him. That's the motivation that he's telling us. So as believers, we have nothing to fear, but unbelievers do have something to fear. Look at the next motivation. I'm gonna spend a little bit more time on the next one. And so the first one, why finish strong? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The next one here is that we don't want to be led astray or lead others astray. Here's what I find that often happens when people don't finish strong. They're, they're led astray in their life or their doctrine in one way or the other. Listen to what he says. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, this is specifically to pastors and teachers, but it has application for all of God's people, for all of us as believers. Every Christian is a minister of the gospel. All of us are to preach and live God's word in all seasons of our life, 24-7, when it's convenient, when it's inconvenient. And, and here's what I often say to people that my job is here, and so uh, it's also your job in presenting the gospel and, and preaching the word. My job here, week in and week out, is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. You are welcome, okay? That's my job. I mean, did you notice this? That's your job too. If you're gonna represent God and his word, you're gonna do the same thing. You're gonna comfort the disturbed. You're gonna disturb the comfortable. Look at the text once again. Look at these words. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, listen to the language, rebuke, exhort with complete, here's the attitude, with complete patience and teaching. So, so, Here's what you need to understand. If you want to hear his comforting voice, how many love to hear his comforting voice? You guys want to hear his comforting voice? 
Guess what? You have to listen to his convicting voice. You cannot pick and choose. If all you want to do is hear his comforting voice, after a while, you won't hear any voice. You've got to be open to hear both his comforting voice and his convicting voice. And by the way, his convicting voice is not to shame us. It's to draw us. It's to woo us so that he can bring freedom to our lives. So you'll have that that combination working. Now look at verse 3. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this. I'm going to explain this to you. Let me walk through it now. The New Testament is written in what language? The original language? Anybody? Greek? Yeah, Koine Greek, everyday Greek language. So when you study it, you can go back to some of the Greek words from time to time, and they'll help you to understand why the translators used the words that they did, and maybe it will help you to understand it more. And that's what I did with this verse, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Literally, the word means healthy teaching. But having itching ears, that was an interesting word. The Greek means to desire to hear something pleasant. I just want to feel good about me. I want to hear somebody tell me how great I am. That's a little bit of the idea. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers. That word accumulate literally means to heap up piles. So, so what he's saying is true. There's, a, there's piles and piles. There's a lot of teachers that will do exactly that for you, not only here in Phoenix, but throughout the, this nation. It says, will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's an interesting word. The Greek word there is epithumia. It's an over-desire. And an over-desire is taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. So it's taking a marriage or your kids or your job or money, and it's a good thing, but we make them ultimate things. We try to get from them what we should be getting from God, and they become over-desires. And, uh, and what that epithumia is, loving anything more than you love God. And so he's saying that there will be teachers and preachers and churches that will reinforce your idolatry. They're not going to expose it, but they're going to reinforce it, and they're going to maybe even attract you to themselves by using, using your passions, the things that you want. Look at what he says in verse 4. And will turn away from listening to the truth. These are people. These are churches. What the Bible teaches and wander off into myths. The Greek word is fiction, fable, and falsehood. Now, so, so what is he saying in verses 3 through 4? Let's just make sure that we're on the same page here. And uh, so it sounds like to me he's making a contrast between healthy churches and unhealthy churches. Would you agree with that? Okay. There's three of us that agree. Okay. Some, do you guys agree? So, so he's actually, he's talking about here's healthy church and then here's the itching ear church, okay? And so we're going we're gonna to use a catch-all phrase. I didn't come up with this phrase. It's actually from a book that I just finished reading, and it's, uh, it's an attractional church. It's, it's kind of a catch-all phrase, attractional. It's by Jared Wilson, the, the gospel-driven church. And, and so I'm just going to give you kind of a summary of what he says in this book because he really helps us to understand that. But attractional churches are the most popular in the valley currently and in the nation, these attractional churches, itching ear kind of churches, telling you what you want to hear. So I want you to think about this. I'm not just banging on them here. I want you to be discerning. I don't want you to fall prey to what he's saying here. And, um, and in fact, attractional churches, I've seen Pentecostal charismatics fall prey to that. I've seen Bible churches fall prey to that. And, and uh, I'm not saying all of them are like that. I'm just saying I've seen churches within those different groups I've seen, there's no doubt, seeker churches very much so fall prey to that. There's, they're very large seeker churches here in the valley. And they fall prey to this idea of attractional churches. Now, this is, it's on your notes. Put this on your notes so that you'll know what, what I'm talking about here. Attractional churches, by the way, I, I've also seen Bible churches that teach the Bible, teach the Bible, teach the Bible. And it becomes more of a moralism than it is really about Christ. And uh, do better. You can, it depends on how you teach the Bible. You can teach the Bible all day long, but if you're not teaching it appropriately, you're not helping people. 
And so attractional churches are where the gospel is either missing, peripheral, occasional, or incidental. I've actually heard pastors in the valley tell me that they only talk about the gospel about every six weeks or more. Or Christmas and Easter. It's the only time they really, really talk about the, the gospel. And I'm thinking, what? Are you kidding me? And so the gospel is either missing, peripheral, occasional, or incidental. They have consumeristic values and pragmatic methodology. Consumeristic values is giving people what they want rather than what they need. It's more entertainment versus encounter with Christ. There's a major difference between the two. Most people don't even know the difference. Most people don't know. And their pragmatic methodology is self-help and how-to messages with God as one of the steps or as a footnote in the steps. And so what happens, they have consumeristic values and pragmatic methodology, and therefore when consumers and pragmatists, now take a look, this is on your notes, what you win them with is what you win them to. Whatever you use to win people, to draw people in, is what you're ultimately winning them to. So if it's consumerism or pragmatism, that's what you're winning them to. You're not making disciples. And in fact, next statement, if they aren't won by the glory of Christ, they aren't won to the glory of Christ. And you can read more from Jared Wilson on the gospel-driven church. He actually came out of a seeker church, and he was on staff for quite a number of years, and so it's, it's, he really does a great job at explaining the difference between attractional churches and a gospel-centered church. Now, let me add to that, just so you, you know what I'm talking about here. Using biblical principles for self-help and how-to messages, which a lot of churches do, but if that's all you do, you are creating religious people who lack the power to change. Apart from the gospel, at best, they become nice unbelievers. I mean, I can teach you communication skills, conflict resolution skills, you know, how to be a better person. What you need more than anything is an encounter with Christ and have him transform your heart. Charles Spurgeon put it this way a long time ago. A time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. Charles Spurgeon also said, do not go where it is all fine music, grand talk, and beautiful architecture. Go where the gospel is preached and go often. So when you pick out a church to go to, man, you want a church that is saturated in the gospel. Now, I got to define the gospel because most people don't even know the gospel. Most American Christians couldn't, couldn't tell you what the gospel is. Most of them that go to attractional churches are clueless about what the gospel is because they're not hearing the gospel regularly. And we need to hear the gospel daily. We need to preach the gospel daily to ourselves. And you need to know the difference between what the gospel does and what the gospel is. Oftentimes I ask people, what is the gospel? And they'll tell me what the gospel does. The gospel transforms our lives, yeah. But that's not the gospel. Yeah, the gospel, we are forgiven of all of our sins. That's what the gospel does. We're forgiven of our sins. That's not what the gospel is. That's what the gospel does. We're adopted into his family. We are empowered by his Holy Spirit. We are guaranteed a place in heaven. That's what the gospel does, but what is, what, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. That's the gospel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not a popular message. People don't want to hear that oftentimes. So what these attractional churches are doing, they're wanting to make the church more appealing, but little do they know that the gospel is amazingly appealing and repelling at the same time. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the gift... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6, 23. 
But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Oh my goodness, I was wrecked years ago. I want to hear that every day. Because you see, one of our biggest problems, one of our biggest problems, one of your biggest problems is gospel amnesia. You forget what you have in Christ. You forget who God is, what he's done for you, who you are in light of that, and the difference it can make in your circumstances. Why do you respond and feel the way you respond and feel? Oftentimes in a very negative way. It's because you forgot the gospel. So you need to preach what the gospel does and what the gospel is to your heart every day, every weekend. Every weekend you need to to hear the gospel. We all need it regularly. I love it. I celebrate it. I bask in the reality of it. Oh my goodness. And so that's the gospel. Don't confuse what the gospel does, transforms lives with what the gospel is, the good news. And John 3, 16 and 17 is the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all of us. That's what it says. So, okay, okay, thank you. I, I, I needed to, yep, praise God, praise God. Just sharing my heart here. You always get the chance to see my heart. I love you guys. I love the gospel. So here's what a healthy church is, healthy church. This is my heart for us, that we would be and continue to be a healthy church. Healthy churches will be gospel-centered and help you to grow in your affection and esteem for Christ and his word. That's when you know you're on track. Oh my goodness, I want him and I want to know him through his word. This will produce in you an obvious humble confidence, repentance and belief. 115 of Mark, Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. That's what it will produce in you. So this will produce in you an obvious humble confidence and an evident love for God in others. Services will be built around beholding who Christ is and what he has done um, that empowers you to do what he has called you to do. 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, it's in the beholding of the glory of Christ we become whole. Wholeness takes place. You want transformation? Learn how to behold the beauty and the glory of Christ. When you disconnect the what should Christians do from what Jesus has done in the gospel, you have legalism, no matter how positive they might be. They can give you a list of how to have a better marriage and how to be better parents and how to be a better person and all that. But apart from the gospel, you're just becoming a nicer unbeliever and you don't disconnect that. It begins with what Christ has done You need to bask in the reality of that. He rescued us. He loves us. He gave his life for us. He empowers us with his Holy Spirit as a result of that. And and then you can do what God has called you to do. So it's the belief, which is the root, comes before the behavior, which is the fruit. If your fruit is bad, you don't work on the behavior. You don't give it, get a people another list of things to do. You go back to your beliefs. You go back to the root. You learn how to behold his beauty. Believe me, I have become a better husband, not because I had another list of things to do to become a better husband, by beholding the glory of Christ and realizing that as it says in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, it says, husbands, love your Wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When I began to see that, and it got a hold of my heart, oh my goodness, that made me a better husband. And the same thing goes for every aspect of my life. It was the gospel to begin to transform my heart and help me to see more clearly, oh my goodness, this is what I have in you? Of course, Of course I'm going to be a better pastor or a better person or a better father 
or, or, or a better spouse. It's going to naturally overflow. As I'm basking in his love for me, it's going to be seen in how I live that out in my life. So you don't ever want to separate the, the dew from the done. The dew flows from the done. It's been done. It's done. It's ours through Jesus Christ. And, then, and so he goes on here. By the way, let me just say, attractional churches are about behave and feel Attractional churches are behaved a lot on the do's. They'll give you a lot of do's. They'll keep you busy, give you a lot of busy work, almost like self-righteousness. So attractional churches behave and feel. Gospel-centered churches are behold and believe. We become what we behold. And all of us, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, we all behold something. All of us are looking to something for our... For our, for our meaning, hope, and happiness in life. And we are beholding that, and it begins to transform us, whatever it might be. And that's all the gospel is just saying, man, behold the beauty of Christ. And as you do that, and you begin to see all that he is, here's, here's what you need to understand. As I begin, when my heart was smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it wrecked me years ago. Game over. Game over. And I want you to be wrecked, okay? I want you to be wrecked too. And there's nothing that compares to knowing him and to experiencing him in your life and then beholding him and enjoying him and walking with him. Okay, so why finish strong? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We don't want to be led astray or lead others astray. It's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Okay, we're gonna pick up the pace. We are, okay? Seriously, we really will. And I wanted to spend a lot of time on that. You could hear a pin drop in here, and it's really good because you guys are really reflecting on that deeply. But here's what's interesting is that we've had people that have left here and gone to attractional churches, and we've had people come from attractional churches and came here and said, oh my goodness, we were starving for the glory of Christ. That's what they've told me. And so here's the next part. What is finishing strong? Verses six through eight. What is finishing strong? This is what he says in verse six. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. In, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, this was the final offering to God. Paul saw his, his death as his final offering to God. They would pour, out, uh, pour wine out onto the ground, which almost seemed wasteful, was that, uh, that offering, the final offering to God. Paul was about to be martyred for his faith, in Christ, which would seem wasteful, a drink offering before uh, a drink offering being poured out unto God. What's interesting about this text is that he he knows death is imminent, and yet he is not in a panic. Do you see any panic in these four chapters, like the chapter we read here? Do you see a guy that's panicked? No, not at all. And in fact, Paul was in his late sixties. I mean, this is Paul's kick to the finish line. You guys know what a kick is? Have you ever watched run uh, races where it almost seems like a guy picks up the pace towards the end of the race to run through the tape? I ran the 800 when I was in, the, uh, in high school. And uh, so we would actually train in such a way that that last 100 yards or 200 yards, we actually would pick up the pace. It's really exciting in a race when you see two runners kind of competing with each other, and they actually pick up the pace. They're running harder than they've ever run throughout the whole race. Paul is doing that right here. This is what we're seeing. We're seeing him kick to the finish line all the way. And um, he knows death is imminent, and yet he is not in a panic This is Paul's kick to the finish line. Now, let me ask you this. Would you like to know when and how you are going to die? What do you guys think? Any takers? At the end of the service, I'll tell you. Oh, no, I won't. I can't. I mean, can you imagine that if if I came to you and said, you're going to die in the next, uh, in a plane crash? You would never get into another plane again, would you? I'm never going to, you're going to die in a car crash. I'm never going to drive again. Nancy's great-grandmother, who was in her 90s, lived in an old farmhouse in Texas. She had just finished mowing the lawn and was sitting on the porch drinking a sweet tea, and bam, she went to be with the Lord. That's how I want to exit. (laughs) What do you think? Except for mowing the lawn. 
I'll just sit on the porch and not drink sweet tea. I'll drink a frappuccino. <laughs> Wait a minute, Lord, I'm not finished. Okay, I'm ready. Bam, I'm with him. Wouldn't that be amazing? But guess what? You don't get to pick. It's not our choice. It's his choice. He chooses that. You must let God choose your exit plan. Here's the first thing in, in what, is, what does it mean to finish strong? What is finishing strong? It is accepting all that God sends into your life whether you understand it or not. It's a, it is accepting all that God sends into your life whether you understand it. He's gonna have his head cut off. He's in prison. He's in his 60s. And he's just saying, I'm a drink offering. I'm in God's hands. I've been bought with a price and I trust his loving, wise control of my life because nothing that he allows is wasteful. All suffering is meaningful in the hands of my Savior. That's what he's saying here. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't ask boldly for healing or change circumstances, but in the end, you surrender completely. God, my life is in your hands. It's for your glory and for your honor. Look at what uh, Amy Carmichael says. It's on your notes. When I consider the cross of Christ, how can anything that I do be called sacrifice? Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What is he saying here? I have fought. I have fought to trust God. It's a fight. It's a fight because we have our own sinful nature we struggle with. We have the values of this world. We have an adversary that we're in his crosshairs. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought to trust God and live my life for God according to his word and all the way to the finish line. That's what we see Paul saying. So I, there's a lot we could say here, but let me give you the next film. Like, this is what I think is one of the many things you could say here. It is obeying all that God says whether I agree or not. It is obeying all that God says whether I agree or not. So the first one, how to finish strong. It is accepting all that God sends whether you understand it or not. It is obeying all that God says whether I agree with him or not. Here's the big lie. You guys know this. Here's the big lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The lie is this. You're not going to be happy if you obey God. It's a lie. Take life into your own hands. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. You don't need God. That is a lie. Listen to what 1 John 5 Two through three says, by this we know that we love the children of God and when we love God and obey his commandments. He's just saying, we, we love God and we love the children of God. We're showing that we have a love for God and when we obey his commandments, we're showing our love for him. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. What does he mean by that? It's a delight to honor him as he empowers us to do so. That's why, what he means by it's not burdensome. Now, I, I, I need to explain the difference between moralism, which is taught at a lot of attractional churches, versus the gospel. Moralism says this, I obey, therefore God accepts and blesses me. So get your act together. You want God's blessing, you want his acceptance, come on. Come on, get your act together. That's, that's moralism, that's not the gospel. I mean, I've even heard it taught like this. Hey, you know, you want, you want God's blessing in your life, you've got to obey him. And I'm not denying the fact that there is, there is blessing in obeying him. The, the problem is, is that that's not the gospel. The gospel says this, God accepts and blesses me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. You're, you're getting the, the do before the done. It's done. It's done. We have access into the throne room of God. We have a relationship with God, not based on our performance, based on his performance. And believe me, that begins to transform us. And, and, and then you're going to want to follow him. His commandments are not arbitrary rules, but they reveal the character of God and his perfect love and infinite wisdom for how he, how he wants us to live. Disobedience is trampling on the love and wisdom of God. It's like saying, you don't care about me. You don't have my best interests at heart. 
I can figure this out on my own. Goes back to the garden. We all have that deep inside of us, so we need help with that. Listen, if you think obeying God, living a holy life is boring, you don't know God. I've heard people say this, yeah, 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 I'll come to Jesus, you know, I'm gonna go out and have a little fun first, and then I'll come to Jesus. I'm like, what are you, insane? You don't know God. You don't know his perfect love and infinite wisdom. Because you wouldn't say that. You would say all the stuff in the world, even if I gain the whole world, it does not even come close to what I have in him. What I have in him is so much more. In fact, I'm willing to cut my hand off and pluck out my eye just so that I can have more of him. If these are the things that are causing me to sin, he's not saying that literally, obviously, but he's saying that, man, that's the urgency you begin to take when you begin to understand who Christ is and what he has for you. Look at verse eight. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So what does this mean to finish strong? What is finishing strong? It is accepting all that God sins, whether you understand it or not. It's enjoy, it, it, is, uh, it goes before that. It is accepting all that God sends, whether you understand it or not. It's obeying all that God says, whether I agree or not. And then here's the last one of this. It is enjoying all that God is, all that God is because the best is yet to come. It is enjoying all that God is because the best is yet to come. Paul expects that that one of the characteristics of God's people is that they will long for Christ's appearing. Verse eight, why? Because on that day, everything that is wrong, broken, fractured about this world will be mended, healed, and made right. It tells us that. I love Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But not only is he talking about that, but also Christ appearing will bring the consummation of our relationship with God. What we have in part now through his presence, his power, and his peace working in our, in our lives will be so complete at his appearing that it will transform us instantaneously. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 puts it this way. We see through a glass darkly or dimly. The mirrors that they had in those days were just polished brass, so you, you couldn't make out the details. You could see the outline of the person I want to go back to those mirrors. And um, just so I just see the outline. Okay, yeah, I'm still alive. I see myself there. But, uh, but he says, though we see through a glass darkly, but then, but then, but then face to face, face to face, face to face with him, with your creator, I will know as I am fully known. How fully known are we? He knows the number of hairs on our head. I smile because it's kind of an easy count. <laughs> For some of you, I'm not gonna mention myself there in that, that we will know as we are fully known. A couple weeks ago, we got a phone call and it was uh, to go to the hospital to visit Betty McGowan. She was 97 years old. So we went to the hospital and the McGowan family have attended Desert Breeze for well over 25 years. So my wife and I walked into the hospital room, walked over to the side of the bed, and Betty, she, when we walked in the room, she just lit up. And I walked on the side of the bed, and she said, Pastor Ray, I'm ready to go home and be with Jesus. And I said, so am I. <laughs> I'm right there with you. And, and I said, but let me, let me make sure you're ready and let me pray with you. And I talked to her about the gospel and she understood and she loved Jesus and I prayed with her. And then uh, a couple weeks later, uh, we did her funeral and it was great to hear her kids get up and eulogize mom. It's pretty amazing, pretty amazing to see that. It was an easy funeral for someone that's ready, ready to meet Jesus. She was excited. And here's what was interesting about her. She was very, very weak physically, really struggling, and yet she was strong spiritually. 
It's amazing to watch that God working in her life right then and there, getting ready to take her home. I'll never forget this as long as I live. Guy's name was Dave Stallings. His wife was here last night sitting right back there, his, his uh, barb. And uh, I'll never forget this because we had gone on vacations with him, had a lot of fun, and then we parted ways for one reason or another, and there was a little bit of conflict. And, and you know how you try to resolve all those things, but you, know, you part ways and you go your different paths. And then, uh, and, and then I had heard that Dave was kind of on his deathbed. He was about ready to die. And, and his son called me up and says, hey, my dad wants to see you. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what is this? Is he going to kind of resolve some conflict that we've had in the past? Or eh, I'm not ready for this. I'm kind of wiped out. But I asked my wife, would you please go with me? And, <laughs> and she goes, yeah, I'll go with you. And, uh, and so uh, we went into the room. His family was gathered around him. And then they exited. And he looked at me with this big smile on his face. I'll, for, I'll never forget it. And he said, don't worry about me. Don't be concerned about me. I'm moments away from being face-to-face with my Savior. I was like, I was stunned as, as I saw this in this man. He's on his deathbed, and he was, he was excited. And he said, get over here, you and Nancy, get over here. I'm praying for you and your family, and I'm going to pray for Desert Breeze. And he prayed the most amazing prayer for my family, for Nancy and I, and for Desert Breeze. His funeral was just a few weeks later, and I wept uncontrollably at his funeral, overwhelmed with what I knew he was experiencing at that moment, and overwhelmed with the presence of God. I'll never forget it, as long as I live. Enjoying all that God is and knowing that the best is yet to come will produce in us a life of accepting all that he sends and obeying all that he says all the way to the end. So how do we finish strong? Let me just give you the last few points here. How to finish strong. He's gonna give us that, verses nine through 22. Stay in touch with your friends. Stay in touch with your friends. That's what you see in verses nine through 13 and 19 through 22. I mean, did you notice that? Verses nine through 13, do your best to come to me. He's talking to his friends. He's talking about specifics in, in, in their lives and in all of that. And then uh, verses 19 through 22, he gives final greetings to all of his friends. So he's telling the friends that he's wanting to be by his side and then he's giving final greetings to all of his friends. Paul is admitting his weaknesses and expressing his needs. This honesty allows others to know where he is and gives them the opportunity to help and encourage him. It's called bonding. It's when your conversation goes beyond cliche conversation, facts, and opinions. You get down to feelings and needs. That's what he's doing here. He's just opening his heart. He says, man, I need, I need my friends. I need, by the way, did you notice? I need my jacket. It's getting cold in here, okay? I need my jacket. I, I need some books so that I can continue to stay focused on, on God and on Christ Jesus. If Paul, arguably the greatest and most mature Christian in the history of the world, can be vulnerable and admit his needs, we should be willing to do the same. That's what he's showing us. He's a great model. If Paul needed others, we need others too. If we are growing in maturity, we will be marked by the same vulnerability and exhibit a similar dependence upon others. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's the next one, really, really an important one right here. Don't let a root of bitterness grow in your heart. Now listen to what he says here in verses 14 through 16. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. He's in touch with reality. He's not denying the hurts that people have inflicted upon him. He's just laying it out there. This is scripture. He's writing it in scripture. But notice what he says. You can tell there's some forgiveness in his heart. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Okay, let me trans- translate that. God, get him. Go deal with him. And believe me, when you turn all of those grievances over to God, you will pity them because you know the real judge is going to mete out judgment upon them. And that's what he's saying here. He's got forgiveness in his heart. He's turned it over to the real judge. And... uh, And he says, beware of him. He's even warning Timothy, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. 
And notice this, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Do you hear forgiveness? Yes, yes. Hebrews 12, 15, it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that a root of bitterness grows up causing trouble and defiling many. It will cause trouble in your life. This is baggage that you don't need to carry throughout your life. And it's really about learning how to forgive and to accept all that God sends into your life and knowing that he can use all of that for your good and his glory. And it's, it can spring up, cause trouble for you, and then you defile others. Root of bitterness is self-pity, unforgiveness, hostility, criticism, cynicism, it can lead to depression. I mean, I didn't see an ounce of bitterness in Betty McGowan or David Stallings. They had unpacked that a long time ago. You do not want to be taking that to the grave. An unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. If you can't forgive, it's because you haven't sensed his forgiveness of you. You're missing out on the grace of God. You can see that in the Apostle Paul. Listen to what Amy Carmichael says. For a cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, however suddenly jolted. It's not the hits and the hurts we take in life. It's what's inside of us that comes out of us when we take those hits. That's what it's saying. And man, when you bask in the reality of what's been done for you and the grace of God, it, it changes you and how you respond. And here's the last one. Trust God to be with you and strengthen you to the end. Trust God to, to be with you and strengthen you to the end. I love this. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. You might be able to put it this way in these words. My spouse has abandoned me, but God, but the Lord has stood by my side. My kids have defected from the faith, but the Lord has stood by my side. My coworkers despise me, but the Lord has stood by my side. My health and finances have forsaken me, but the Lord has stood by my side. He is more than enough to face anything you are going through. Give him your life. Live your life for him. Live your life for him. Here we go. Everybody look up here. As a child of God, as a child of God, you are never, ever, alone, no matter what you feel. He is always there, and he will always be more than enough. Let's prepare our hearts for communion here this morning. Just take a minute.